Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Please support our independent journalism at democracynow.org. That's democracynow.org. Your donation will be matched dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. New York, this is Democracy Now! The resumption of hostilities in Gaza is catastrophic. We urge all parties and states with influence over them to redouble efforts immediately to ensure a ceasefire on humanitarian and human rights grounds. Recent comments by Israeli political and military leaders indicating that they are planning to expand and intensify the military offensive are very troubling. At least 70 Palestinians have been killed as Israel resumes its bombardment of Gaza after a week-long truce expired. We'll look at a stunning new report in the Israeli press about how Israel's loosened its rules about killing civilians while developing what's been described as a mass assassination factory. It tries to explain why so many civilians are being killed in Gaza, most of them women and children. And part of the reason is, according to these sources, is the increasing use of AI, artificial intelligence programs, to accelerate the creation of targets at a faster rate than Israel is able to strike. Then we speak to the mother of Hisham Artani, the Palestinian student at Brown University shot in Burlington, Vermont, with his two best friends, two other Palestinian students. And we talked to human rights attorney and war crimes prosecutor Reed Brody about the death of Henry Kissinger, who escaped justice for decades. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Dozens of Palestinians have been killed after Israel resumed its bombardment of Gaza, ending a week-long pause to facilitate the exchange of captives. Hamas responded by firing a salvo of rockets towards southern Israel. The U.N. says the resumption of violence puts thousands of innocent lives at risk. Since the October 7th Hamas attack, the Israeli bombardment has killed over 15,000 Palestinians, including 6,100 children. Israel's expanded its military campaign to target southern areas of Gaza, where Israeli planes have been dropping leaflets warning people to evacuate areas around Khan Yunus, warning the city was now a dangerous battle zone. Israel previously expelled hundreds of thousands of people from the northern Gaza Strip to the south. Just hours before the truce expired, Residents of Khan Yunis searched through the rubble of their former homes for any personal items they could salvage. The end of the calm today feels like our execution. They are telling us that today is the last day of the ceasefire, and we have 24 hours before we return to a life of sheltering in schools in squalor, with the hardship of life without water, electricity, or proper shelter. We want a complete truce, not being told every day there is a truce only to have it breached. Israel's renewed assault on Gaza came after Israel and Hamas completed a seventh exchange of captives. On Thursday, eight Israelis held by Hamas were released. 
while 30 Palestinians were freed from Israeli jails. Israel's government says it believes Hamas still holds 137 hostages kidnapped during the October 7th attacks. Newly freed Palestinians report suffering torture and sexual assault. This is Bara Abu Ramuz, a Palestinian journalist who spoke after his release from an Israeli jail Thursday. The situation in the prisons is devastating. The prisoners are abused. They're being constantly beaten. They're being sexually assaulted. They're being raped. I'm not exaggerating. The prisoners are being raped. Earlier this week, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres called for an investigation into reports of sexual violence committed by Hamas on October 7th. Israeli government officials knew Hamas was planning a large-scale attack on Israel more than a year ago, but failed to respond to specific warnings about the plot after dismissing it as aspirational. That's according to an explosive report in The New York Times, which says Israeli officials intercepted a 40-page battle plan by Hamas detailing how its attack would play out, a blueprint Hamas closely followed October 7th. Meanwhile, Another explosive new report by Plus 972 magazine details how Israel is using artificial intelligence to draw up targets in Gaza and how Israel's loosened its constraints on attacks likely to kill civilians. One former intelligence officer described the plan as a, quote, mass assassination factory. After headlines, we'll go to Jerusalem to speak with the Israeli investigative reporter Yuval Abraham, who broke the story. In Arizona, 26 people were arrested Thursday as protesters peacefully blockaded a Raytheon manufacturing hub in Tucson, demanding an end to U.S. arms transfers to Israel. One protester said, quote, we're outraged that more than 15,000 Palestinians have been killed while companies like Raytheon continue to fill their coffers with blood money, unquote. Among those arrested was journalist Alyssa Resnick of public radio station KJZZ. She was arrested by Pima County Sheriff's deputies even as she carried recording equipment and repeatedly identified herself as press. MSNBC is facing a torrent of backlash after announcing it's canceling the Mehdi Hassan show. The British-born journalist is known for holding powerful figures to account and is one of the most powerful Muslim voices on American television. Following the news, Congressmember Elhan Omar said, quote, it's deeply troubling that MSNBC is canceling his show amidst a rampant rise of anti-Muslim bigotry and suppression of Muslim voices, she said. Journalist Ryan Grimm said, quote, Mehdi's style of confrontational interviews in which he doesn't let public figures get away with lies or half-true talking points turned him into a celebrated journalist in the U.K. His show's cancellation is such a pathetic indictment of the U.S. media, Grimm said. Mehdi Hassan's show has been welcomed as one of the few on mainstream networks to question Israel's narrative over its attacks on Gaza. Earlier last month, Hassan interviewed Mark Regev, a senior advisor to Prime Minister Netanyahu. I have seen lots of children with my own lying eyes being pulled from the rubble. Not because they're the you pictures don't... Hamas wants you to see. Exactly my point, they're, they're, dead, they're Mark. the pictures also, Hamas wants you to see. There are also people no, your government has that... killed. You accept that, right? You've killed children, or do you deny no, that? No, I do not. I do not. I do not. First of all, you don't know how those people died, those children. Oh, wow. Russia's Supreme Court has banned LGBTQ plus activism in a landmark decision Amnesty International blasted as shameful and absurd. 
The ruling, which asserts the so-called international LGBTQ movement, is extremist, threatens to further endanger already persecuted communities. This is transgender activist Ada Blackwell. I escaped from a conversion camp just over half a year ago. I was kidnapped. They tried to cure me for a year. They tried to convince me that I was not a transgender woman. They failed. De facto, after the adoption of this lawsuit, I will not be able to talk about conversion therapy. It will be forbidden for me because it will be associated with the LGBT topic. I will not be able to help a large number of people. All trans activists, many queer activists have already left Russia. I am one of the last, apparently, who have remained in Russia. What to do next? The only option I know is to leave. The World Meteorological Organization reports 2023 is virtually certain to become the hottest year on record, warning of worsening wildfires, floods, ice melt, heat waves, and other extreme weather events. Since the start of the year, the average global surface temperature is up about 1.4 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, or about 2.5 degrees Fahrenheit. That's just a tenth of a degree below the target limit of 1.5 degrees set by the Paris Climate Accord in 2015. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres announced the findings Thursday as the UN's COP28 climate summit got underway in Dubai. We are living through climate collapse in real time, and the impact is devastating. We have the roadmap to limit the rise in global temperature to 1.5 degrees Celsius and avoid the worst of climate chaos. But we need leaders to fire the starting gun at COP28 on a race to keep the 1.5 degree limit alive. Tune into Democracy Now! all next week when we'll be broadcasting from the COP28 UN Climate Summit in Dubai. The White House has confirmed President Biden will not attend the COP28 summit this year, but that Vice President Kamala Harris will be in attendance. This week, the Biden administration launched an auction to sell $3.4 million in oil and gas drilling leases. It's just the first in a series of auctions that will take place as COP28 unfolds. Over the next two weeks, the Interior Department will sell off land exploitation rights in Wyoming, New Mexico, Nevada, North Dakota, Oklahoma and Utah. This comes as data from the U.S. Energy Information Administration show the Biden administration surpassed the Trump administration in crude oil production, bringing U.S. production higher than at any other time in history. The Center for Biological Diversity warns Biden's fossil fuel projects, quote, threaten to erase the climate emissions progress from the Inflation Reduction Act. The House of Representatives voting today over whether to expel New York Congressmember George Santos, who repeatedly lied about his professional experience, his background, and likely committed multiple violations of campaign finance rules. Santos painted himself as a victim of a smear campaign, refused to resign as he addressed lawmakers Thursday as they debated his future. When this vote is on the floor, it is in the conscience of all of my colleagues that they believe that this is the correct thing to do. So be it. Take the vote. I'm at peace. If ousted, Congressmember George Santos would become just the sixth member of the House ever to be removed by fellow lawmakers.
And in California, animal rights activist and attorney Wayne Chung has been sentenced to 90 days in jail after he was found guilty of felony conspiracy and misdemeanor trespassing for rescuing dozens of injured and dying ducks and chickens at two factory farms in Sonoma County, California. The charges stem from peaceful actions at Sunrise Farms and Reichert Duck Farm. Murray Holden, a member of Wayne Chung's legal team, spoke outside the Sonoma County Courthouse after Thursday's sentencing. I believe that this trial will end up in the Book of Animal Liberation when that book is written. I'm tremendously grateful to Wayne for the sacrifice that he has made, the injustice of the fact that a human being is being held in a cage for the supposed crime of compassion, for rescuing other sentient, feeling beings from cages, will not be lost on the world. Wayne Chung is the co-founder of Direct Action Everywhere, a global network of animal rights defenders. To see our interviews with him, go to democracynow.org. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israel's resumed airstrikes on Gaza after a week-long truce ended. The strikes have reportedly killed at least 70 Palestinians. Israel's dropping leaflets ordering Palestinians in Khan Yunus, the largest city in southern Gaza, to head further south toward Rafah. Since the October 7th Hamas attack, the Israeli bombardment has killed over 15,000 Palestinians, including 6,100 children. The Office of the U.N. High Commissioner for Human Rights has described the resumption of attacks as very troubling. The resumption of hostilities in Gaza is catastrophic. We urge all parties and states with influence over them to redouble efforts immediately to ensure a ceasefire on humanitarian and human rights grounds. Recent comments by Israeli political and military leaders indicating that they are planning to expand and intensify the military offensive are very troubling. Talks are reportedly continuing for a new truce and the release of more captives. Israel says it believes Hamas still holds 137 hostages kidnapped during the October 7th attacks. We turn now to look at a stunning new expose on how Israel's using artificial intelligence to draw up targets and how Israel's loosened its constraints on attacks that could kill civilians. One former intelligence officer says Israel's developed a, quote, mass assassination factory. In one case, sources said the Israeli military approved an assassination strike on a single Hamas commander, despite knowing the strike could kill hundreds of Palestinian civilians. Another source told 972 magazine, quote, nothing happens by accident. When a three-year-old girl is killed in a home in Gaza, it's because someone in the army decided it wasn't a big deal for her to be killed, that it was a price worth paying in order to hit another target. Everything is intentional. We know exactly how much collateral damage there is in every move, unquote. 972 also reports the Israeli military knowingly attacked civilian targets, including apartment complexes, universities and banks, in an effort to exert, quote, civil pressure on Hamas. We're joined in Jerusalem by the Israeli investigative reporter Yuval Abraham. His latest report for 972 magazine and local call is headlined, A Mass Assassination Factory, 
inside Israel's calculated bombing of Gaza. Yuval, thanks for joining us again from Jerusalem. If you can talk about who your sources are and what exactly they're using, the Israeli military is using AI for, explain this idea of a mass assassination factory. Sure. Yeah. So I'll start by saying, uh, Amy, that, that, you know, there are some things that I can say and other things that I cannot say. You know, we as Israeli journalists are subjected to the military censor. So, so everything that I have published has to be vetted by the military. So, 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 and I also, my knowledge is partial. So I've spoken to seven Israeli intelligence officers, some of them current, some of them former intelligence officers. All of them took part in wars against Gaza in bombing campaigns whether right now or in 2021, 2022, and 2014. And the use of artificial intelligence is an increasing trend that, is, that, 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 the, that the army is adopting um, to mark targets in Gaza. And I think a good year to, to, to look at, to understand its beginning with relation to Gaza is 2019, when um, the chief of staff, Aviv Kohavi, uh, introduced this new division in the military called the Targets Division. And its idea was to bring together hundreds of soldiers and basically start to develop these AI algorithms and automated software to accelerate the target creation for, for strikes with life and death consequences in Gaza. And, and you know, a source that actually took part in, 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 in this division center said that they were being judged not by the quality of the targets that they were producing, but by the quantity. That the idea here was that if you want to create a certain shock effect, if you are fighting against a guerrilla group like Hezbollah in Lebanon and or, or, or Hamas in Gaza, this is, this is the source saying, then, uh, sorry, can you hear me? I hear you perfectly. Yeah, sorry, I, I just, somebody said something, so I thought, should I repeat something? No, Amy, go or? ahead, keep going with what you're saying, Yuval. All right, so, so, so the source said that uh, this shock effect is the way Israel views uh, its, its war tactic against these organizations. And part of that is trying to accelerate the creation of targets. Now, in 2014, which was the previous biggest uh, Israeli assault on Gaza, according to sources that I've spoken with, the Israeli military ran out of targets after roughly three weeks. And that operation lasted for 50 days. And sources have described a sense that in previous operations that the military just runs out of targets to bomb and alongside that there is some political pressure or some need to continue the war to, to, to create a victory image for the Israeli public uh, uh, um, to, to work you know to, to apply more pressure and I think this increasing use of artificial intelligence this acceleration of target creation in part is a response to that problem to running out of targets and what we know now from sources is that target production using these programs, one of them is called the gospel, and, and according to sources, it does facilitate this mass assassination factory that I can get into in, in a moment, but the, the, the rate of creating the targets is now faster than uh, the rate that Israel is able to bomb the targets. And in this target division, according to, to the army's sources, already 12,000 targets were created during this war in this target division. Um, using these artificial intelligence 
tools, which is which is too much, two, 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 two times as many targets as were as were bombed in the entirety of the 2014 war, which lasted for 51 days. Um, <clears throat> civilian targets, including private homes, uh, public buildings, uh, infrastructure, are referred to as power targets. Could you repeat the question, Amy? Um, Sorry. Can you explain hear. what power targets are, Yuval? I'm not, I'm not hearing anything um, right now. Can, okay, listen, we'll go to a break. We'll come back and we'll um, uh, make sure you can hear us. Yuval Abraham is a journalist based in Jerusalem who writes for 972 Magazine and Local Call. He's just written a piece called A Mass Assassination Factory. Inside Israel's calculated bombing of Gaza. We'll be back in 30 seconds. Students at the Ramallah Friends School in the occupied West Bank singing a solidarity song for the children of Gaza with their teachers, Safi Awad and Issa Jilda. In just a moment, we'll be speaking with Elizabeth Price, the mother of one of the three Palestinian college students in the United States, um, who was shot in Burlington, Vermont, Saturday night. But right now, we're continuing with Yuval Abraham, journalist based in Jerusalem, who writes for 972 magazine, his most recent piece, A Mass Assassination Factory. Um, Yuval, explain what a power target is. Sure. Yes. So power targets is a concept that was developed according to intelligence sources in the military first in 2014. And the military defines power targets as residential high-rise buildings. So they have eight floors, 12 floors, 14 floors. And the official military's claim is that in each of these buildings, there is military target that merits, that legitimizes bombing down the entire building. However, according to three sources in Israeli intelligence that I've spoken with, who have a deep knowledge of this tactic, who, who have been involved with bombing power targets, they say that the idea of power targets is to purposely attack buildings that have all of these civilian apartments in them in order to put pressure on Palestinian civilian society in Gaza, which is then translated to pressure on Hamas, civilian pressure on Hamas. I've heard this term several times in my conversations with intelligence sources. Now, in 2021, Amy, the Israeli military bombed the Al Jala building in Gaza, which you know, it, it caused an international uproar because this was a building that hosted the AP, uh, AFP, and Al Jazeera media, media outlets. It was one out of nine high-rises that were bombed in 2021. I've managed to confirm from sources within Israeli intelligence that this was, in fact, 
a power target. One source said that there was this idea that if we bomb the high-rises, it causes uh, the civilians to feel like Hamas is not sovereign, like they have lost control. One source said that he felt this was a form of a terror tactic. Now, very importantly, the sources that I've spoken with have dealt with these power targets before 2023, before the current Israeli assault in Gaza. So I know less about the specifics of power targets that are currently bombed. However, we do know from official army statements that Israel during the first five days, so up until October 11th and October 12th, has bombed 1,329 power targets. The military said that half of the targets that were bombed were identified as power targets in the military. Now, during these five days, we know, of course, that hundreds of children have been killed. We've managed to find indications of these buildings that were bombed without an evacuation protocol. And this is a very important point because according to sources that I've spoken with, in the past, the internal protocol in the military was that you can only bomb power targets, which are high-rise buildings or governmental buildings inside neighborhoods, after you've evacuated all the families from the building. This was a principle that was in place in 2021, where they bombed nine high-rises, nine power targets, and no civilian Palestinians were killed because they did put in place an evacuation protocol. They call, you know, the, the guard in the building. It's, it's, it's quite horrific, and, and, you know, there's little missiles. But at the end of the day, the goal was to put pressure on civilians by destroying their apartments from what I've heard from sources, and not by killing them. Now, I don't know, again, I haven't spoken to sources that have bombed power targets in this operation, but there are clear indications that I am finding in Gaza, for example, the El Mohandesin Tower, which was bombed on top of all the families inside of it, or Babel Tower, or El Taj Tower, that they were bombed while the families were inside. And I think I'm, I'm assuming since these are high-rises and since the military has said that it bombed over a thousand power targets, that these were power targets. So this is a shift. If, 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 I mean, the evidence suggests that there is a shift here of not only striking targets that are primarily intended to cause civilian shock or to put civilian pressure on Hamas, again, according to intelligence sources, but apparently in some of the cases, the evidence suggests that such targets have also led to the killing of families. I want to turn to U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken speaking Thursday at a news conference in Tel Aviv. Israel has the most sophisticated, one of the most sophisticated militaries in the world. It is capable of neutralizing the threat posed by Hamas while minimizing harm to innocent men, women, and children. And it has an obligation to do so. The way Israel defends itself matters. It's imperative that Israel act in accordance with international humanitarian law and the laws of war. So, Yuval Abraham, if you can respond to what Blinken's saying, you know, at the beginning after the October 7th attack, President Biden uh, said that the support for Israel was unconditional. They could do anything they wanted. Now, clearly, uh, with massive pushback in the United States, with protests of people all over the country and around the world, um, you have both Biden and uh, Blinken stepping back and saying you have to protect civilians. One of your sources suggested that the scale of this attack 
with an unprecedented number of civilian casualties in Gaza has to do in part with the Israeli military's wish to redeem itself after the catastrophic failures of October 7th. And now you have this big New York Times expose that Israel clearly knew a year ago the blueprint for this attack. And there are other reports in Haaretz and other places that say, I think they were called the women surveillance soldiers uh, along the Gaza border. Um, I think they're called spotters, were repeatedly telling their supervisors in the last weeks, in the last months, we see this escalation here. It looks like Hamas is about to attack. And they would be told they'd be brought up on insubordination charges if they kept pushing this issue. Yuval. Yes, Amy, it's very important for me to respond to Blinken's statements. And I think I have three, three things that I really want to say, and I really want people to listen to them. The first is that the very real war crimes that Hamas has committed, you know, killing people, some of them I knew, massacring people, do not justify Israeli war crimes in Gaza that are being committed. That's number one. Number two, this idea that the military is doing whatever it can to keep civilians in Gaza safe, or that it is using its technology to not harm civilians in Gaza is false. It's not true. And I know this not only from looking at the catastrophic killing of so many civilians in Gaza, but also by speaking to intelligence sources who have told me that now all of the previous restrictions that were already permissive that were that in, into harming civilians have been dramatically loosened. For example, one source spoke about how you get sort of this approximation of where a target is, and it's not pinpointed. And yet soldiers will still strike it, knowingly killing families and civilians to save time, to save time in getting a more accurate pinpointing of the target. It's very important that people understand that, and this is according to five sources that I've spoken with in Israeli intelligence, in all of the target fires that, that, that Israel is bombing right now, the amount of civilians that are likely to be killed is, is written down. So. So again, it's, 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 it's not a mistake, as, as you've quoted in the beginning of the piece, uh, in the beginning of, of, of the narration, Amy, um, it, when a child is killed in Gaza, it's because somebody made a decision that, that, that this killing was worth it to hit another target. And there are internal regulations that the army has created that regulate this. And so, 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 so it's very clear to me that after October 7th, there is a total disregard for Palestinian civilian life, even when hitting targets that are either not uh, uh, distinctly military in nature. The third and, and final thing, and this goes back to the idea of, of a mass assassination factory, is that there is a systematic policy, according to sources, of targeting private residential homes of Hamas or jihadi operatives when they are in these private homes, when they are in these buildings or private residences. And just, just, so, just so you understand, I mean, what this means is that the military is knowingly dropping a bomb that weighs a ton or, or often more on a residential building in order to assassinate one person, knowingly killing that person's family and neighbors in the process, when according to sources, in the vast majority of cases, these buildings are not places where there is military activity that is being conducted. It is an assassination against somebody who is in Hamas or Jihad's military uh, brigades, but they are not in a military place. One source who was particularly critical of this uh, uh, a policy said that he thought it was like if Israel would bomb, uh, if, sorry, if, if a Palestinian militant group would bomb the, the homes of 
Israelis, not when they are wearing their army uniform, but when they are going back home in the weekend, uh, and, and, and essentially assassinating them through the bodies of their families or their neighbors, and then saying that they use those families as human shields. Now, I think that we've talked about these power targets, and we've talked about these assassination targets, and of course, there are many different types of targets that could be considered under international law more legitimate. Uh, for example, militant cells, for example, ammo warehouses, for example, uh, you know, rocket launcher pits. And I think that to look at the civilian devastation that is happening right now in Gaza, you have to understand that it's a consequence of a particular Israeli war policy. It is a war policy that has a very loose interpretation of what a military target is, also attacking people in civilian spaces. It is a war policy that centers on deterrence and hitting these power targets that are intended to place uh, civilian pressure on Hamas. And it is a, and it is a war policy that is increasingly, increasingly being uh, 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 um, helped by the use of big data, automation software, and AI. And again, I don't know everything. I've, I've only spoken to several sources, but my evidence suggests that many, many of the, of the civilians who are being killed in Gaza are being killed as a result of these policies that I do not think are justifiable policies. International law experts would call them war crimes. And that's why I don't think that what Blinken is saying is true, honestly. We're going to talk more about war crimes later in the program. Yuval Abraham, I want to thank you for being with us. Israeli Jewish journalist based in Jerusalem who writes for 972 magazine and Local Call. We'll link to your new piece, A Mass Assassination Factory, Inside Israel's Calculated Bombing of Gaza. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We turn now to Vermont, where family members of three Palestinian college students shot in Burlington Saturday night are arriving to care for their sons, who they say were targeted simply for being Palestinian. In a minute, we'll speak with the mother of Hishem Aratani. He was shot in the spine when he took a walk with his friends, Kenan Abdelhamid and Tassan Ali Ahmed, after they visited relatives while staying in Hisham Graham's mother's house uh, for Thanksgiving break. All three have been friends since the first grade at the Ramallah Friends School in the West Bank. Two of them were wearing kafiyas, the symbol of Palestinian pride, when they were shot. Their alleged attacker, Jason Eaton, has pleaded not guilty to three counts of attempted murder. Authorities have not yet added a hate crime enhancement to his charges. The Associated Press reports Eaton had a history of domestic disputes that led police to confiscate his shotgun a decade ago. NBC News reported Tuesday that another ex-girlfriend told police in 2019 Eaton had continued calling and texting her and driving by her house after she'd made it clear she didn't want to communicate with him and she'd considered filing a restraining order. So often, mass shooters um, have abused women in their past. At a vigil Monday on the campus of Brown University, where Hisham Aortani is a student, Professor Bashar Dumani, the Mahmoud Darwish Professor of Palestinian Studies, read a statement from Hisham. I would like to start off by saying that I greatly appreciate all the love and prayers being sent my way. Who knew? that 
All I had to do to become famous was to get shot. <laughs> and as much as I appreciate and love every single one of you here today, I am but one casualty in this much wider conflict. Had I been shot in the West Bank, where I grew up, the medical services which saved my life here would likely have been withheld by the Israeli army. The soldier who would have shot me would go home and never be convicted. I understand that the pain is so much more real and immediate because many of you know me. But any attack like this is horrific, be it here or in Palestine. This is why when you send your wishes and light your candles for me today, your mind should not just be focused on me as an individual, but rather as a proud member of a people being oppressed. That statement from Hisham Awatani was read at a vigil Monday night at Brown University's campus, where he's a student. Hisham's mother, Elizabeth Price, joins us now from Burlington after traveling from her home in Ramallah in the occupied West Bank to be with her son in the hospital. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Elizabeth. I'm so sorry you're here under these circumstances. Can you talk about how Hisham is doing and his friends, the two other Palestinian students shot on Saturday night? Hisham makes me so proud. I mean, he was lying in his bed, um, paralyzed from the chest down, uh, in great pain from um, broken bones and in shock and traumatized. And he typed out that statement to be read out to a vigil. And I was so impressed with his ability to focus on others um, during that in, in this in this time of, of, of his life being devastated. Um, he is in stable condition. Um, he is going to be transferred to a, um, a rehabilitation center so that he can live to learn, learn to live with his injuries and then also hopefully um, and definitely return uh, on a path towards full mobility, we hope. Um, his other friends, um, are also stable. One has been discharged from the hospital, um, but is, is serve, severely traumatized. You know, he spent 45 minutes thinking that his, his friends had been shot dead. Um, and then, uh, a third, uh, the third child or the third young man, because they are children to me since they grew up in my house, um, is, is stable and working towards discharged, but they are all traumatized. Um, and they are all, feeling grateful to be alive and feeling the bitterness of the fact that they are receiving such attention and such support and such incredible medical services from the Burlington community and the Burlington medical facility, while at the same time people are dying under the bombs of the Israeli bombardment. I mean, the fact that the Israelis have started bombarding again uh, of the Gaza Strip is something that will crush them more than their injuries have crushed them. My son said that when he went through the list of those who had died under the Israeli bombardment a few weeks ago, he found that there were 30 that had his name, Hisham. And he has said in another statement uh, to a Brown newspaper, he says to remember, like he said in the vigil, I am the Hisham you know. And I think that um, he just really wants people to be thinking about the Palestinians who are dying by the tens of thousands right now and, and not to be focusing on him. And I think this is something that he and, and, and is, it, this is a sentiment that is shared by his friends as well. 
I'm wondering if you can tell us, although he wants to talk about himself as, as he said, a member of an oppressed community, think of all the people who don't get help when they're shot right now um, in Gaza and the West Bank. But if you could tell us about Hisham, um, I, he's Palestinian, Irish, American. Is that right? Yes. 20 years old, a junior at Brown? Yes, yes. So um, Hisham was born in America. <laughs> and is a, a devoted Giants fan. Um, he grew up in Palestine. He's an Irish citizen because I was born in Ireland, um, and he's Palestinian because his father is Palestinian, and um, he's a, you know grew up in Palestine. He's a born mathematician. He has mathematics in his family. He once said to me that just numbers make him happy, um, and he is the type of person who he's a he's a, a polymath. He's a polyglot. You know, he speaks what Arabic and English. Does he speak? Arabic and English fluently. He has uh he's studying he's very good at Persian right now because he's been taking Persian. He took uh Kunea Foreman College, so he you know can write in a, an extinct language. He has studied Hebrew and German and French in high school, and he is currently studying uh, Spanish and Italian at Brown. Um, and he, uh, is doing a BSc in pure mathematics at college. He went in as a math student. And then when he took a, um, when he took a, a course in archaeology, he was just hit by a bug of, for archaeology, bitten by the bug of archaeology. Now he's doing a BSc in, in math and a BA in archaeology. Not really quite sure how those two things go together, but Hisham has the ability to just suck in information, create this incredible database of knowledge that he can make quite rapidly, um, um, connections with and then come out with a conclusion that he shares with people. I mean, he's, he's a, he's, a, he's a computer in his brain. Um, and yet at the same time, he's very soulful and, and very philosophical. And I think in the last few days, I mean, this hasn't even been a week since this happened to him. In the last few days, I've really understood how Hisham has the ability to have his soul and his heart encompass his people and for him to be able to contextualize the suffering that he's had within what is is something that he sees as the valid uh, and the dignity of his people. So I, I think that is giving him great comfort. There's an Arabic word, uh, sumud, which means resilience. It's about the concept of, of, of existence being resistant, staying on your land no matter what. And Hisham, for me, signifies and symbolizes um, that concept. He is like an olive tree that he can get cut down, but he will regrow. And, and, and that is where he gets the strength to be thinking about other people and about his people, even while he lies in a bed unable to move. Well, I think we can also see where he gets his spirit from you, Elizabeth. Um, um, and his I'm lucky to be his mother. I am blessed <laughs> to be his mother. I'm so privileged to have, have, have gotten to know him in my life. So can you talk about them growing up in the Ramallah Friends School? We spoke with the head of the school, who's now head of the whole American Friends Service Committee in the United mm -hmm. States, Joyce mm -hmm. Ajluni. Um, Talk about his experience growing up in uh, Ramallah, where you live, and going to this Quaker school. Well, I mean, life in, in Ramallah and life in Palestine is a, is a beautiful thing. Um, obviously, we live under military occupation, and so, you know, people are killed every day, and, and often they are children. Um, and um, children are arrested, um, and people are arrested, and often the school is goes on strike because in solidarity with the news of someone being killed by the Israeli army. So it's a life that where you know 
when the school goes on strike that someone's lost their life and, and the walls of the streets around uh, the school are filled with pictures of people who have been killed um, in, 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 in memory of them. Um, but Ramallah and Palestine is a place of family and community. It's a place where everyone knows each other and you feel safe. My daughter, who's 17, can walk home late at night in safety because everyone respects the other and sees the other as a member of a larger society or community or family. And so you're never alone and you're always, everyone acts to take care of each other. So these boys grew up together. They did model United Nations. They, they, they talked and they did math club and they did chess club and they would come to my house on a Saturday afternoon, um, like giraffes, you know, as they grew up over the years and they would duck under my threshold and sprawl over on my couches and I would make them food. And then they would cram themselves into Hisham's tiny room and they would just talk about philosophy and politics and language. And then just talk about, you know, just joke with each other. And, and then when they were, receiving their college uh, results um, for those who had admitted, applied to American colleges, you get the results at like three in the morning in Palestine. So they would stay up together and they would be on the phone to each other and, and they would be there for each other. So if as they one person up opened their email and if it was good news, they would celebrate. If it was bad news, they would, would commiserate. And so that helped them survive so much. And uh, the, the three boys um, um, who you mentioned, Hisham and his two friends, are like brothers. And I think that uh, that has been so important for them. After they were shot, they were kept in the same ICU room for a number of days by the hospital because the hospital recognized that this the proximity meant that they could be with each other and give each other strength. Uh, Kenan, who has been released, is was the least hurt, but was was deeply, deeply traumatized by the experience that he went through when he thought that his friends had been killed. And so by keeping him, even though he could be released with the boys, they uh, the hospital was able to give them that comfort of being with each other and having that camaraderie and that brotherhood sustain them in the time where they were just trying to come to grips with the hatred that had been shown to them, the devastation of their lives and, 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 and the crippling of, of my son. I'm looking at a report from NBC. Um, at one event at Brown, 20 students were arrested by university police and charged with trespassing after they refused to leave a sit-in outside Brown President Christina Paxson's office. A friend of Hisham's, Daniel Newgarden, said that Hisham had attended a Shabbat dinner with some of the Jewish students who'd been arrested during the sit-in and that they got together each Friday afterward. And they talked about the alliance between, uh, between Jews and Palestinians. Uh, who they saw increasingly anxious after October 7th, Elizabeth. Yes, um, Hisham did uh, up, did notify um, Brown that he felt um, unsafe on campus. I, I hadn't realized that. Hisham often wouldn't tell me things. He was so busy with his life doing five courses and 20 hours of, of work. But he, he did feel anxious. He was active. Um, and I have to tell you that when we heard about that sit-in um, by the Jewish students, we were we were moved. Um, there has been such an incredible outpouring of support by Jewish activists in America. Um, the concept of the Grand Central Station uh, Grand Central Station sit-in was something that reverberated around Palestine and and really um, lifted our hearts. And then when Hisham sent me a picture of him at Shabbat dinner with these young people, I just felt like he was in the right community. I mean. The, the, when this type of thing happens, when Palestinians are, are so traumatized um, and so abused by the international community and, and the ignoring of their rights, my children um, learned over this 
last seven weeks, what it is to be on the wrong side of, of justice. And I think for uh, definitely my daughter um, and definitely Hisham, it opened their eyes up to what it is to be a, um, a part of an oppressed community and, and the opportunity for solidarity across that. Uh, Jewish people have, have been targeted for, for centuries by anti-Semitism. Um, the my, other minorities in America, the Native Americans have, have been in solidarity with the Palestinians, uh, Black Americans. So many different minorities have, have reached out and, and, and been in student solidarity with the Palestinians. And I think that that's the life that I want my children to experience, to live in a community where they know and fight for the injust, about, against the injustice that others suffer and that they know that the others are suffer, standing with them in the injustice against the injustice that the Palestinians suffer. So that Shabbat dinner gave me great joy when mm -hmm. I heard about it. And people can go to Democracy Now! and see we were there at the Grand Central protest, hundreds of Jews arrested as they shut down Grand Central Station on a Sabbath night, on a Friday night. Um, if you can say what the doctors are saying right now, Elizabeth, uh, the, uh, Hisham has a bullet lodged in his spine. He also, uh, his thumb, uh, what else is uh so Hisham, um, from what I understand, he must have had his hand up when he was shot. And so the, the bullet went through his thumb um, into his clavicle. And then I think it may have ricocheted against his, his um, scapula. It broke a, I think it touched a rib, and then it went into the T2 of his spine. So from what I understand, that trajectory and that passage meant that the, the, bone, uh, the, the, bone slowed, the bone slowed down the bullet which is very lucky because I think the bullet would have um, severed his spine. So currently the bullet has lodged there and there's a concussive impact, which has meant that um, that Hisham has lost um, the sensation of, of pain and temperature, but he can feel pressure um, from his mid-torso downwards. So Hisham has to go through a long process of physical therapy to be able to regain um, the control of his muscles down there. Um, in the short term, I believe that he will be able to learn how to live with that. Um, he'll be given the, um, he'll be taught how to live with his disability. And our long-term plan is to support him to be able to regain motion, functional motion in all of his body. Mm -hmm. But my son has um, an incredible mind and an incredible soul. And he is already, the doctors say that it's hard sometimes to get people to engage with their new situation. And Hisham has been asking questions and inquiring and just taking control of it all with his, with his, with his curiosity and, and taking the information so he can process it. So he's tired and, and it's a long, it's, it's the next step is, 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 is the next phase is going to be a very long process, but he's very determined and he's a brilliant and curious and, um, I think I know that he'll be a success no matter what he does. He was shot in Vermont. There's a three member Vermont congressional delegation. You've got Becca Ballant, the first Jewish American Congress member to call for a ceasefire. Peter Wells just joined her, the Vermont senator and Vermont Senator uh, Bernie Sanders. While he has not called for a ceasefire, he has called for aid to Israel to be conditioned on what's happening in the West Bank and what's happening in Gaza. Your final thoughts on what you're calling for now, Elizabeth, as your son lies in the ACE, as in the ICU. Thank you. Um, I think one of the things that I really want to emphasize is that there should be, it would be irresponsible for there to be any discussion of the mental health status of, of the perpetrator, perpetrator. There are millions of people suffering with mental health issues, and it is uh, disrespectful to them um, to imply that mental health is something that in, is in, leads to, to gun violence. There are 
millions of people in America with mental health cannot pick up a gun and shoot. And it is, it is irresponsible to victimize the shooter in this case, in this case. So any discussion of, of, of what his mental state was or his emotional state was is irresponsible. It's also a, a double standard. It is often applied to white perpetrators of shooting crimes, but not to those uh, who are non-white or of, of, of different backgrounds and particularly of minority backgrounds. And so I, I consider that to be unacceptable and recent statements by the media that have highlighted that have um they broke me last night and i i i I find that incredibly offensive that people would would victimize the shooter i would also say that it is time to call for ceasefire the fact that the bomb started falling on gaza again today crushed me um i i celebrated uh, becca balance's stance and i i applaud and i'm so grateful for peter welch's statement of an unconditional ceasefire the palestinian people in gaza have been brutalized by not just the bombardment by the fact that they haven't had they didn't have food water or fuel for weeks they just sat there and died um and i i i just I was in deep depression and mourning for seven weeks, even before this happened to my son. And my son would be, I think, redeemed in his suffering if he knew that in any way, in any small way, attention brought to the Palestinian people through his plight helped to make the decision makers in the American government recognize that Palestinians are humans and Palestinians deserve to live. And if one more Palestinian child dies or is injured in the way that my son was injured, it is a travesty that this world should not have to live with. My son is receiving attention and the best medical care in in America. If he was in Gaza or if he was in the West Bank, he would have been dead in prison or just thrown somewhere in a in a in a medical facility without the support he would need to be able to uh, recover from this. So I am incredibly privileged, and as is my son. That he has been hurt here amongst this community who have supported us and provided us with the medical care where he is seen as a valid human being. And I think in my son's name, I call for all the decision makers and policymakers in the American government to recognize the Palestinian children in Gaza and the West Bank and in Jerusalem are also human and deserve the dignity and the support that, that my, husband, my, my, my son is being provided with. Elizabeth thank Price, you. we thank you so much for being with us. Mother of Hashem, please give uh, him all of our regards. One of the three Palestinian students shot by a white man while visiting their family in Burlington, Vermont, this past weekend. Elizabeth Price joining us from Burlington after traveling from Ramallah and the occupied West Bank. So did his father to be at Hashem's side. Coming up, human rights attorney, war crimes prosecutor Reed Brody on the death of Henry Kissinger. Back in 20 seconds. You got a way of walking. You got a way of talking. And it's something about you. And now I know I never ever want to be without you. I want to be home. I wanna be haunted by the ghost. 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 W
Haunted by Shane McGowan and the Popes, featuring Sinead O'Connor, Irish iconoclast frontman for the Pogues, the ever-complicated Shane McGowan passed away at the age of 65 Thursday. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. We end today's show looking more at the death of Henry Kissinger, remembered by some as a leading diplomat, but by many others as a war criminal for his actions in Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Pakistan, Chile, Argentina, East Timor, and other countries. By some accounts, Kissinger was responsible for the deaths of at least three million people. Kissinger served as U.S. Secretary of State and National Security Advisor under Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford. We're joined now by Reed Brody, human rights attorney, war crimes prosecutor, author of To Catch a Dictator, The Pursuit and Trial of Hissein Habre. In June, Reed wrote an article for Just Security titled, Is Henry Kissinger a War Criminal? Well, why don't you answer that question, Reed, and talk about <laughs> what— um, should happen at this point. Now, at the age of 100, Henry Kissinger is dead. Thank you, Amy. Well, as you've said, I mean, few people have had a hand in so much death and destruction in different parts of the world uh, than Henry Kissinger. But what I tried to do in this article uh, was look at specific instances of Henry Kissinger's action and whether he could be accused of war crimes. In fact, in, in after the, uh, the arrest of General Pinochet, uh, Michael Ratner and I were teaching a class at Columbia Law School on the Pinochet precedent. We asked students to look at different incidents. And um, three in particular suggest uh, that Henry Kissinger could have been accused of war crimes. Um, one is Cambodia, uh, the other is Pakistan, and the other, which you've talked about a lot on your show, is East Timor. Um, I, I know we have little time. In Cambodia, we know that Henry Kissinger chose bombing targets, um, that he ordered uh, that anything that moves um, be, uh, be, be bombed. And that in essence, is ordering a war crime, ordering that, that even civilian targets be, be, be attacked. In the case of East Pakistan, 1971, Pakistan was two separate countries. Um, there was an election. Um, uh, independence leader took uh, one in, in East Pakistan. But West Pakistan, uh, Ayub Khan, uh, would have nothing to do with it. And they started attacking um, civilians in East Pakistan. Um, uh, raping tens of thousands of women, um, hundreds of thousands killed. Um, the American consul in East Pakistan uh, wrote a memo uh, to Henry Kissinger uh, saying, we are participating in a genocide. We have to stop. Uh, the U.S. ambassador to India, uh, Kenneth Keating, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, Keating, the, the former senator of New York, um, told uh, Henry Kissinger and, and Richard Nixon, we are participating in a genocide. Kissinger had, had the author of the memo fired. He called Keating a, a, a traitor. Um, and not only did they not um, uh, restrain Pakistan, who was receiving 80 percent of its military assistance from the United States, they actually organized the transfer of, of American weapons uh, from Iran, uh, from Jordan, um, to Pakistan as the, blood, as the bloodshed continued. Um, so that makes Henry Kissinger liable for aiding and abetting uh, 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 the slaughter that was that was that was uh, carried out there. A very similar situation that you know well, Amy. East Timor. Um, not only did Henry Kissinger and Gerald Ford give the green light 
uh, to the invasion of East Timor. Um, but as the casualties mounted, as hundreds of thousands of Timorese were dying, uh, the United States, which had a, a, a donor client, as Henry Kissinger called it, relationship with East Timor, that was supplying 90 percent of, 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 excuse me, of Indonesia, 90 percent of Indonesia's um, uh, uh, military uh, uh, gave additional assistance. Um, and so these situations, Timor, um, uh, uh, East Pakistan, it's, it's, it's as if you're, you're in an ammunition store and the guy is out there uh, on a shooting spree and he comes back to get more ammunition and you give it to him. These things make, uh, ha- make Henry Kissinger, I, I believe, liable for war crimes. Reid, uh, we're going to continue this conversation after and we're going to post it at democracynow.org. Reid Brody, human rights attorney, war crimes prosecutor, will link to your article, Is Henry Kissinger a War Criminal? That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.